Welcome to the Flight Deck, a leading edge podcast. I'm First Officer Dewey Duhadway, your host for this episode. I'm here with Captain Andy Riggs, who's been with the company flying for 17 years and is an ALPA volunteer in one way or another for 16 of those 17 years. Uh, is currently serving as the vice chair of the negotiating committee. So welcome, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Now we've got this uh, document. This is the third one. It's Next Steps 3. And I wonder if you can, from your negotiating committee perspective, tell us a little bit about these documents. What is Next Steps and, and how does this come to be? Yeah, so Next Steps uh, is the joint document that's put out by the company and ALPA that summarizes the changes in the contract moving forward as they're implemented. Uh, not only does it explain in plain language the new provision that's coming into play, but also how the pilot can access that. Uh, so if it's something that needs to go to the flight office or through Help Hub or it's automated, not only does it tell the pilot about the new provision, but how they can expect to see if it's a paid function, when they can expect to see it in their pay register, uh, because a number of items are being implemented through a manual process to get them brought online earlier. And we'll transition to a automated process but it just tells the pilot when they can expect to see the item. The next steps is produced uh, from a, a small group called the implementation team or I team for short. The implementation team is comprised of two company individuals who are directly involved in negotiations that were at the negotiating table and two ALPA uh, negotiators that were at the table. And what that allows us to have is a group of people who understand the intent behind the language uh, what was discussed at the table using the negotiating notes. And we can understand, uh, come to an understanding together of how uh, individual case maybe wasn't specifically spoken or called out in the language is supposed to be handled. There's, that group doesn't operate in a vacuum. Uh, the ALPA side of the table reports back up through the negotiating committee and eventually up to the master chairman. Um, and, and we've had instances already where something uh, came up that we needed to kick back up to the negotiating committee to make sure that we have uh, an understanding on our side and that, that that follows the intent of what we obtained negotiations. And, and in one case, uh, we also had something that we were able to obtain something greater than originally negotiated for our pilots. Uh, but because that was outside of the exact contractual language, we brought that to the master chair uh, for his conference as well. Excellent. Now, I appreciate the clarification on that. Andy, because I think sometimes when these documents come to us through the company website, it may appear to some that this is just a company communication directly to us. So I think it's helpful for our pilot group to understand this is still a joint effort at overall implementation. So I appreciate the clarity on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. We're not going to cover everything that's in Next Steps 3 today. Suffice it to say, we want everybody who is listening to this podcast to access the document, take their time and read it and uh, discern for themselves the parts that might be applicable to them. But I do think it'd be helpful to touch on a handful of these topics because I think they're maybe worthy of some additional explanation or the voiceover from you would be helpful to our pilot group. So first I wanted to start with the scheduled ground time pay. This is in 3D7. And to read the description, it says for scheduled continuous ground time uh, as defined as the time between the flight segments in the same duty period in excess of two hours, a pilot will be paid ad pay on a one to two basis. Can you explain a little bit about 
kind of the what was behind that and how this this came to be? Sure, Dewey. So there's a number of items that we negotiate that are uh, targeted to improve the quality of life for our pilots, and this is one of them. There's different ways to do that, and one of these is the incentive in pairing construction or trip construction to build more productive pairings, uh, to build trips that don't have long sits in this case. Um, the problem with the long sit is twofold. One, it's, it's a safety concern uh, because we are a safety organization first, is that fatigue aspect of, of flying and having a duty period where you have a long sit in there. It's an opportunity for fatigue to set in and for pilots to be fatigued for other flights in their duty period. Typically, when we have a long sit, uh, that only adds to the length of the duty period, uh, meaning you don't typically fly an hour and a half long flight, sit for three hours, and then finish up with an hour long flight. It's typically sandwiched in there to make your duty day extend from six hours to 11 hours or something of that nature. So what we're trying to combat here is trips going out the door from crew resources that have long sits involved that only add to the overall duty day length versus a shorter sit to keep the pilot moving as they go through the hub. Okay, that's helpful. And this is, to be clear, a little bit in the reverse of the way the holiday pay works, meaning the holiday pay comes into play when you're actually operating that trip on a holiday versus this is a scheduled construction ad pay. Have I got that straight? Correct. So. Um, for consistency's sake, holiday pay is an actual disruption of the pilot's holiday. So if you were scheduled to uh, get back in at 11.30 at night, the night before uh, the holiday, that's not a holiday, for example. So we'll say 11.30 at night on uh, October 30th, and then you get back 30 minutes later, and then a 15-minute debrief takes you into Halloween. Now you are actually working on October 31st, an actual disruption of that. The reverse is also true. If you were scheduled to get back at midnight 15 on October 31st and uh, you get some directs and fly fast and have the jet stream at your back and you get back at 1130 at night and debrief at 1145, now you are no longer actually having your October 31st disrupted. And so for consistency there, uh, holiday pay is based on actual. This is a scheduled. Uh, the intent here is for things that are within the company's control, it starts off right off the bat with trip construction don't schedule our pilots for uh, long sit times, which is defined in the provision as in excess of two hours. Uh, what this does not cover, unfortunately, is a situation where a pilot has a mechanical situation that goes into a, a long delay. So you have an hour long sit. Now you're looking at three hour sit while they find parts plus. Um, it would not protect you for that. It would not protect you for a misconnection and a reassignment that then has a long sit in between. Uh, those are not things that the company initially could control. And so we were unable to obtain long sits for actual as well. This would protect you in the situation where you have a two and a half hour sit and you depart the, uh, the outstation typically uh, going into the hub and maybe you depart the outstation late and now your two and a half hour sit is now compressed to an hour and a half. Uh, you would still be paid because it was a scheduled sit time longer than two hours. You would still be paid the appropriate sit time there. Okay. No, I appreciate that that clarification. I think that's helpful. Another implemented item here in Section 5 has to do with pilots in global uh, reserve categories that are not going to be awarded an, a flexible day off. 
now and as part of their PBS awards. So this was something that wasn't going to get implemented until August of 2024. So this to me is a hopefully a sign of some things to come that I know there have been some things implemented early. But so uh, is there anything that you'd like to highlight on this uh, for global FDOs uh, going away? Yeah, for pilots who may not be familiar with the nuance here of the FDO for a global pilot, the FDO uh, for a global pilot that's available for a full bid period has six holy days off that are uh, not able to be disrupted for the assignment of a trip. Uh, under the original UPA, they would have five RDOs, which are able to be disrupted for the assignment of a global trip, and then a single FDO, which can be disrupted for the assignment of a basic or global trip. Uh, where we've really seen this come into play is post-pandemic, uh, our wide bodies are, are or I'm sorry, our global category. So 756, 777, 787, those aircraft are doing uh, a lot of domestic flying still. And what that allows is the disruption of that FDO for the assignment of a Hawaii trip, for example, or a Transcon or some of the domestic flying that goes on in those fleets. Um our concern there was that that flying uh, most often can be broken up or uh, there are alternatives to covering it versus disrupting uh, those global pilot schedules. They already have, uh, what is that, five or six times the number of flexible days off as a basic pilot. And so our thought process there was let's, let's restrict that further um, to preserve as many days off as possible for those pilots. So going forward, uh, the only way that a global pilot can have their days off disrupted will be for a global trip. They won't be able to call you up and, and roll your day off to sign you a Hawaii or a domestic trip. It'll only be for a global trip. That's good to know. I think that's, like I said, I think that's a, that's a positive thing. It's nice to see that one get implemented much sooner. Uh, another Section 5 implemented item that I personally very much appreciate has to do with a, a global reserve being able to declare themselves unavailable on an RDO to go to a medical appointment that has limited schedule availability. I'm thinking of people that might have a special issuance or some other type of uh, you know specialty care that is involved. Maybe it's a one-time thing, maybe it's a recurring thing, but those appointments are very difficult to get inside of the bidding window. So for a pilot to be able to make this declaration on an RDO in advance, I believe it's at least uh, seven days in advance through the chief pilot's office. That's a major feature. So can you talk a little bit more about that and kind of what's involved with uh, with that? Yeah, overall the feedback we received from our, our global reserves, especially was only half of their days were, were solidified and, and certain uh, that they could plan things to accomplish on those days off. And so not only do they need to take care of their families and be there for their families and personal events and things like that, they're also trying to balance these things that have limited availability already, trying to get in, like you said, with a specialist uh, to get things taken care of. Oftentimes, it, like you said, tie into uh, having their medical issue to them becomes very difficult when they have six flexible days off that can be disrupted, or FDO or RDO, uh, they're, they can't count on those. And now they're now they're in jeopardy of not being able to maintain their medical or, or get to the doctor when they need to. So this provision was really outlined there. Um, it can happen up to uh, four times in a rolling 12-month basis. So that should enable our pilots to get where they need to go as far as their medical appointments and with the seven-day advance notice to their flight office have, have very little in the way of pushback from getting to those appointments. Okay. No, that's good news. 
moving on to section 20, the company through CCS published the availability of some something called a short call matrix. And there's been, uh, there's some explanation within the next steps three with regard to what that is. But when you look at it, it seems fairly simple. It has different categories, different times of days, different priorities. Uh, I, it might be helpful for you to maybe give a little bit more of uh, uh, narrative behind the scenes. What should a pilot expect when you look at a short call matrix? You're going into a month of reserve. What does this, how, what does this mean to you? How can you use this to your uh, advantage and to build your situational awareness? Sure, so to give you a little bit of history here and, and to compare it to something else that our pilots are very familiar with, um, we, from the, from the system scheduling committee, I say we because I was a part of the system scheduling committee for a number of years, uh, but now I'll say they, um, the system scheduling committee has worked very hard over the last 11 years since, uh, since the joint collective bargaining agreement implementation to have increased transparency for our pilots of what's going on with the company's decision-making uh, matrix when it comes to scheduling of, re of reserves and line holders. Uh, a parallel universe there would be the reserve pool display or min, min reserve levels. Uh, for many, many years, uh, at Legacy Continental Pilots had the ability to see what the company's min reserve levels were. That was very helpful if you were calling to ask for reserve day off moves as you were setting up trip trades to know if I'm calling to swap my Thursday for a Sunday, if they're below min coverage, I don't need to spend you know, 20 minutes or longer on hold. I already know what the answer is going to be based on. It was also very helpful when a scheduler uh, maybe didn't uh, look at the numbers and just you know kind of blindly uh, or turned a blind eye on it and and uh, declined the day move that you could advocate for yourself and say, no, wait a minute, uh, I see that you're above min coverage. What's the problem here? We were successful, uh, I think it was seven or eight years ago in getting those men reserve numbers published. That doesn't mean that we're happy with them, obviously, but what it brings about is a level of transparency. So now we can have a conversation um, and pilots can see, pilots are all on the same uh, level playing field. This is similar to the short call matrix. The crew desk for years has used a short call matrix behind the scenes. Our Alpha crew desk pilots on the SSC had access to this matrix and were able to advocate over the years for changes to the matrix. Uh, and oftentimes our pilots were able to advocate changes when they might call up or or send in a PDR and say, hey, why are there three 6 a.m. short calls for Newark 737 captain tomorrow? You can look in there and very quickly ascertain that uh, somebody had fat fingered that. That was supposed to be one 6 a.m. short call for captain and one for FO, or maybe they put them all in, the, in one category. And we could advocate for the decrease in the number of short calls. With this level of transparency that, that, the, that the short call matrix provides, there's accountability there. It lets us see uh, what the company's plan is. We can check that against the flight schedule. Our, our SSC crew desk pilots are engaged on that and can advocate if there's a short call that seemingly does not protect an operation, that we can call that out and say this, this appears excessive. It also sets the, sets the expectation there for our pilots of what they can expect as far as short calls being, being put out uh, as assignments for that day. Uh, because the short call matrix is day specific and, and not, not day of week specific, but actually date specific, we can take advantage of the change in flight schedule. So if there's a reduction of flights on Tuesday and Saturday, 
we would expect to be a simultaneous reduction in the number of short calls if they're protecting certain banks, especially our airport structures that have multiple banks. Uh, around holiday times, you might see an uh, increase in number of banks, and you may see a decrease. You may see a hub that has seven or eight banks go down to three or four banks. We would expect to see an appropriate decrease in the number of short calls there, and they can call that out as they review that with their counterparts at the crew desk. The next thing that this provides us later on as we implement the rest of the reserve uh, types of reserve lines, there's a provision in the contract that uh, short calls are going to be capped at six for regular reserve, for traditional reserve. Uh, the company negotiated a provision that said if there are three bid periods where they're constantly hitting the cap, that the company may reduce the number of long call lines offered, long call only, meaning the pilots who cannot be assigned involuntarily to short call, they can reduce the number of long call lines offered uh, in order to properly cover their schedule. Well, the only way to do that is to measure it against a standard. And this would be that standard. So it, it gives us room there so that the company can't just say, hey, sorry, we were capped out this month. Okay, well, we need to see the work. We need to see what your plan was. Did you build according to the plan or did you build in excess of the plan? And that is where your problem is, not in the actual uh, number of short calls that were doled out. So this is this is a good framework to start with. Uh, we anticipate that this matrix will uh, improve as much like a much like an aviation forecast. What we're looking at right now is the TAF, and as it gets a little bit closer, we we expect this to morph and become more like a METAR as it's actually implemented fully uh, with the August bid period, where it uses those different reserve types out there. So. What that means is today, uh, especially if you're in a global fleet, you will notice that some of these short calls may look like they start after a departure. We'll use uh, we'll use Delhi as an example out of Newark. Um, you would expect, I think most people would expect that the short call would start two and a half hours prior to the report time for the departure that's going to protect. That's not actually how a lot of the global short calls are built. They are not to protect an on-time departure. They are set up to protect a delayed departure after the first original crew times out. Some flights you will see a protection of an on-time departure. So that's that's the kind of uh, calculus that goes into these. And that's why it's out there for pilots to see. You'll see uh, some short calls on augmented fleets that, that require two FOs or two captains or one FO or one captain. They're also listed in priority order. So if they don't have enough reserves that day to build all of their, uh, what they call blue sky or required short calls that they know if you can only build two thirds of the short calls that are desired, start with these because these provide the maximum amount of protection. That is very, very helpful. I think for expectation management for our pilot group is key for so much of what we do and for us to be able to manage the day that we're up against, whether that's uh, we're getting ready to go fly the line or if we're trying to figure out how best to support that from reserve. So I think that's a One really good tool. And one of the things that you mentioned that the expectation management, uh, our, our goal with the, with the short call matrix is not to lower expectations from our pilots of, of accountability and good operational use of resources. Our, we've said this uh, throughout negotiations. Our pilots are professionals, and that includes our reserves. They're ready, willing, and able to show up when required to cover flights. That is what their, what their charge is on reserve, and they're compensated to do that. What we are against is pilots being assigned uh, to short calls that don't cover anything, uh, pilots being kept on a shorter leash just because the company can. We're all about um, pulling on the same 
side of the rope. Uh, we, we negotiated this contract in good faith, uh, but what we expect is for the company to communicate, to share their plans so that our pilots can be on board and our union and our specific committee, committees like the SSC that are charged with that to ensure that, that the company is following that direction. If there's a rogue scheduler or somebody who's not following that plan, that they can be brought back into compliance with that plan going forward. Nope, that's good news. I I, I completely agree with that uh, with that strategy, and it seems like that's that's showing up in a number of ways, and I think that's helpful. Not the least of which is the limit on on field standbys that's already been implemented. So limiting that to to two per bid period. So that's good. The last topic I think it would be worth well maybe the second to last topic because I do want to end with a preview of of what's coming next. But the last for next steps three uh, has to do with supplemental reserve ad pay. And this is section 20K10. I thought it'd be helpful just for, again, like you did with the short call matrix to kind of give a little bit more background into what this pay is, maybe what it's not. Some of the language that's in there may be semi-confusing to others besides me, it's, and I'm easily confused, but there are... Um, if I take my time and read it through, I think I understand it. But I do think hearing from you and the negotiating committee would be helpful. So can you tell us a little bit about this uh, supplemental reserve ad pay? Sure. And I think I know exactly what you're talking about as far as the confusion. Um, this this provision, how it was written, how it was written kind of buries the lead, buries the main qualifier about, uh, I don't know, halfway, two-thirds of the way down. Supplemental reserve ad pay is a provision that incentivizes pilots who are starting uh, reserve on day one, so they're coming from days off, to pick up a short call uh, field standby or trip that begins before 10 a.m. When I say incentivize, that's because in our final destination here, starting in August, uh, the vast majority of our reserve pilots are not going to be required to report before 10 a.m. unless it's voluntary, and that's our voluntary early check pilots. So as a a uh, pressure relief valve there, uh, the company and Alpha negotiated an incentive for pilots who are ready, willing, and able to accept an assignment that begins before 10 a.m. And that incentive is one hour of ad pay uh, for a pilot who volunteers to pick up a short call or field standby that starts before 10 a.m. and two hours of ad pay for a trip that reports before 10 a.m. And if you are on a short call that be begins before 10 a.m., say you pick up a, a 6 a.m. short call on day one and then you're assigned a trip, uh, they are going to plus you up to that now two hours of ad pay for that. It won't be a total of three. It'll be converted from one hour to two hours as that incentive. Meanwhile, the company will have access to voluntary early check pilots if they volunteer for those lines to report before 10 a.m. The reason why this is being rolled out early uh, is because in negotiations uh, for LOA 2301, the implementation LOA, we attempted to get as much value for our pilots on the table up front as possible. And this was something that did not need to be delayed until August. This is something that the company could program and uh, run a program and manually increase the pay or automate the pay. But the the ability to incentivize pilots to pick up before 10 a.m. was there. And so we're able to negotiate that for our pilots, the, the added value early as early as possible. The, the reason why this is confusing is because the Qualifier at the beginning says when a reserve has an assignment that reports prior to 10 a.m. for a trip or voluntary field standby assignment or begins earlier than 10 a.m. for a short call assignment. And that and if that assignment is on the day following uh, his days off, 
they'll receive the ad pay. I, I realized there if we had flipped that and started with when a reserve picks it up following their days off, that it would be more clear. Um, but this is one style of writing of contractual language. And uh, perhaps we could clarify that in the future so the lead doesn't get buried halfway through. But this is only available if you're coming from days off. This is this is perfect. That's I appreciate that that you know take like many things in aviation. If you if you take your time and you read it through completely, it becomes understandable. But it sometimes when you showed somebody that doesn't fly airplanes, here's an approach plate. They look at it and have no idea what any of this symbology means. But with enough training and and looking through the whole thing, you can kind of discern what's what. And I realize for many people. That's kind of what contract language is. It takes a little bit of time. It takes some experience living it. It takes experience reading it. And it takes a little bit of effort. But it's always very helpful to have people who are experienced with the language creation, with the negotiation, with how this actually works in practice to kind of clarify and, and make, uh, make the details come to light. So I appreciate you taking the time for that. Yeah, I can tell you on this one, the, the challenge here was... Um, in contractual language writing that has multiple qualifiers, you can do it one of two ways. You can use these when statements and keep it as one provision, or you can do the multiple provisions and use uh, the word that I, I still frustrates me endlessly, notwithstanding. Uh, and if there is one legalese word that I hate, it's notwithstanding. Um, so in this case, we chose to put it all in one section versus having multiple sections in our I see that this is a downside to doing it that way. So, well, we'll always we'll all get improvement. There. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll all get there together. So this is great. And again, want to encourage all the pilots listening to this: go get Next Steps Three. It's an it's a joint Alpa United product. Take your time, read it through, make sure you understand what applies to you and how to use it for your advantage. There are. A lot of things that have been implemented already, there are things implemented early, but there's more to follow. You mentioned kind of August 2024 is a, another huge hurdle for a variety of reasons. We won't go into that, but I thought it might be good as we begin to wrap up our time together, Andy, for you to maybe touch on a little bit of what we might expect in the January bid period, because I think there's a couple things in there that are, they're not insignificant. They're, they are, they're, they're going to have a lot of impact. So can you touch on a couple of yeah. things I'm thinking about uh, long duty day and the, the new 515 rig and, and maybe the PBS timeline? Yeah. So if you go into CCS, if you go to bidding and then bid packages, you can find the January bid packages for your fleet or any fleet that you're interested in looking at the January trips. And you can start to see the impact of the M515D and the long duty day ad pay, how they work in conjunction with each other. At the road shows, uh, we, we heard some concern voice from uh, some of our pilots that fly these high time day trips, uh, mostly from the east coast of the Caribbean, uh, the west coast or or the Midwest bases uh, that are doing turns between, you know, say Houston and San Fran or, or uh, Chicago and Vegas, things of that nature. Uh, the day trips that are high time day trips, what would the impact be as, as they're uh, implementing these rigs? And what we've seen so far in the January bid packages is what was explained to us by the SSC folks at the road shows that these trip rigs uh, don't operate in a vacuum. They operate with the entire solution uh, from the optimizer. And we did not expect to see a, a butchering of the traditional day trips that we've seen in the past, that that, that credit is 
is best eliminated in the longer footprint trips and that we would see higher value and more productivity in our two, three, and four day trips. So far, that's what we're seeing in the January bid period as well. Okay. And I guess real quick, as we um, get ready to end our time, can you can you give us an overview of the the move up of the PBS timeline? Maybe some of the things that, that our pilots might want to start considering. Yeah, so starting in the January bid period, this will be this will not be December bidding for January, but rather January bidding for February. This is when the PBS timeline starts moving up, and it's going to move up a, a total of two days uh, for our pilots as they bid. So the the bidding window will open two days earlier. It'll close two days earlier. Their awards will come out uh, two plus days earlier in some cases, and then everything associated with that PBS timeline will be moving up. So what's colloquially named as the big pick, the first run of the trip trade system, that will slide forward a number of days. Uh, the six-day freeze window will slide forward. And the real goal here, obviously, is uh, our pilots, their quality of life, of being able to plan their next month and not having to wait until the 17th or 18th sometimes to be able to commit, make those appointments, make those commitments with friends and family, but that that begins to slide forward since the uh, opportunity was there in negotiations to obtain that. No, that's good. And I think it, it, it speaks to every pilot's need to be very familiar with the UPA and understand particularly what the LOA 2301 talks about in terms of implementation. And this is, it's not a, it's not a switch we were able to flip on hundred percent across the board, unfortunately, but as we work through these uh, various hurdles along the way, I think we're, we're getting to a point where it's all coming into focus and but in the meantime, it's important for you, me, and everybody listening and all of our pilot group to to stay in tuned and stay informed about how things are going. Any last minute thoughts that you'd like to share with the pilot group before we sign off for the day? Yeah, if you see something, if you have a question, obviously use the PDR system uh, to the appropriate committee. I'm thinking about the, the reserve matrix uh, in particular there. Um, we, we will begin to see uh, a marked change on short calls. We've already seen this on field standby, how the pilots are uh, assigned to field standby involuntarily and how the crew desk uses field standby. Um, they have made the very wise decision to start uh, making these changes ahead of uh, August. So we advise them in negotiations uh, to wait until August of 2024 to, to uh, transform to the new way of doing business for reserve would be foolish in our mind. So it's nice to see them already start to make those changes and, and our pilots benefit from that. So as that happens, uh, please provide us that feedback. Uh, the best source of that feedback is via the PDR system. I know it's it's easy to go on Facebook or the forum and, and complain or ask questions, but if you have an instance of something that seems out of line, uh, shoot a PDR off to those SSC crew desk folks. Those guys are working on the network operations center floor and they're able to engage their counterparts of the company uh, very expediently towards a resolution if something is out of line. That is our strength as a union, uh, as having a membership that is engaged and is knowledgeable of what's going on. And, and the company is well aware of that. They know when our pilots are engaged on an item uh, that they can tell their schedulers and, and the people on their team uh, to, to adhere to the contract that the people are watching. So we appreciate that. It's a great word as always, Andy, and I appreciate it. This has been very enlightening and it's going to help our pilots to stay informed for certain. And thanks to you all for joining us today on the Flight Deck, a leading edge podcast. You can help us out by sharing these podcasts with other United pilots 
and by leaving a review. Look for more of these podcasts in the near future. We'll see you next time.